HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. This is Greenhorns Radio. I'm your host, Severin. I'm coming to you today from the Berkshires in Massachusetts, and I'm joined by Duke, who is not a farmer but a rancher out out west. Hi, Duke. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How is it going over there? Yeah, it's doing well. It's cooling off for fall finally, which is welcome. Yeah, it's starting to feel very, very twinkly and brisk over here. Yeah, I can imagine. A bit more huge than we are here. So so tell us a little bit about what your season's been like or what's been going on with the beef world, um, just to get us caught up on it being October, and then we'll we'll hear a little bit about your story in ranching. All right. Um, well, things here have been pretty good, actually. Um, we're, we're hopefully on the tail end of about an eight-year uh, pretty extreme drought. Uh, it's been pretty tough. We only saw about an inch of precipitation um, for the whole year of, of 2012. Uh, this year um, was looking to be the same, uh, but it um, didn't grow like it normally would because of the severe past years. Um, but we hit the bottom end of our of our average so far, um, and we, we've grown a bit of grass, but um, we're running at about half capacity to a third capacity. Uh, we've de-stocked to hopefully save the ground and set ourselves up when it does start raining. Um, but it, it's been a pretty good year here so far. The market's holding up really well, um, and, and projections um, see it rising uh, further, which would be awesome. So, so people talk a lot about the price of beef being pretty stable because there was such a, this drought has caused such a drastic de-stocking in the West that the supply of beef is very low. Um, but 
can you explain a little bit about destocking and and maybe a little bit about from a holistic management perspective what are you what are your goals in managing and how do you make those decisions for your for your grasslands yep um well well we view the land as a multi dimensional resource um so when the when the drought happens, we're not the only ones affected it's the wildlife and and people downstream and it's a it's a really big problem. Um, so by destocking, we are taking a financial hit in our operations. Um, it might mean we can't keep as many people on or we can't run the same amount of equipment that we've run in the past. Um, we'll rely more on horses, um, pulling a team to fix fence or put out mineral, um, haul hay or anything like that. Um, but in the long run, it'll pay off because our ground is not being uh, used as, as as if it were receiving the normal amount of rain. Uh, and it reflects that. Uh, once, once you do, and hopefully one day finally get rain. So we're big believers in that. And, and as I said earlier, we, we manage with with um, animals, the, the wildlife in mind too, not just from a hunting standpoint, um, but just just as a whole ecosystem, trying to trying to keep an eye out for it. We are stewards of the land, um, and we feel responsible for it. So um, I have. Now, quite a number of friends who are new cowboys or new ranchers have come from city or city or farm backgrounds, getting into um, getting out on the range in their you know mid twenties. You had the good fortune to grow up on a on a family ranch. Tell us about that. Yeah, um, I'm fourth generation um, rancher. My family, my great grandfather, my grandfather started out in Texas. Um, then my great my grandfather moved to Venezuela where he ran a ranch for uh, the Rockefeller family. Uh, my dad was born there and and only there for about three years or so. And then they moved to a ranch south of, of San Angelo, Texas, in Old Mexico, uh, about five hours drive south of the border, um, where he he ran a ranch with a partner in Texas. Um, and that's where my dad grew up, and I've I've never been down to that place. But they sold that place when my dad was about uh, 20, 25 or so. Um, and and since then, my dad's kind of been bouncing around for the, uh, shoot, since about 1999. And then in 99, we acquired this lease. He had to go through a, a formal or a proposal uh, process, and he, he won out over agencies like the Nature Conservancy and other, other local ranchers. Um, to get this property, and it's not a family ranch. It's owned by the state of Colorado. Uh, it's just shy of 90,000 acres, and we have it on a 25-year lease. Um, and then in 2000 and 2004, we acquired another ranch in, in southern Colorado, um, and that ranch runs a wild herd of bison and, as well as some cattle, and that is owned by the Nature Conservancy, and we have that on a 20-year lease as well. Um, so, so while we don't own any family land per se, I, I feel very fortunate to have grown up uh, in a ranching family, um, with ranching being being the tradition. Well, and I mean, two generations ago, in the te- the, the Texas, well, now maybe I'm getting my time my timeline wrong, but isn't that the time of the Longhorn and like the beginning of um, driving cattle to markets further away? Oh, uh, that yeah, that would predated a bit. That might be on the very tail end of it. Um, but 
No, we weren't we weren't really a part of any of that, unfortunately. That sounds fun. That's like serious old school. Yeah. Feral cattle. Yeah. Yep. Um, okay, sorry, that, I, that I get stuck in the fairy tale part. So you guys are running significant operations, two, two um, large ranch operations, and you're stocking them. And so you're you're not you're just doing stalker cattle, or you're doing um, mothers and mothers and babies too. Yeah, we're we're mostly cow calf. Um, we we will hold some yearlings over, or depending on our grass, if we have a really good spring and summer, we'll bring on some uh, yearlings, some stalkers, but uh, primarily cow calf. And then the bison, that herds run um, pretty pretty feral. Um, they run on fifty thousand acres, um, and we just cull off whatever animal is to sell to keep the balance in the herd where we want it. And the bison. Um, well, I don't know hardly anything about bison, and I don't think very many other people do either. Could you tell yeah. us how bison are different in terms of their gut, in terms of their imp- uh, in terms of their impact, and in terms of their like habits of mind from cattle? Yeah, uh, I think uh, bison are, are still a pretty new thing on the market, so people are all just trying to figure it out, and it's new to us. We we sent. In 2004, we hadn't done anything with bison, and then uh, we moved on to that ranch, and they were already there, so we acquired them. Um, that that herd is different than the cattle because because it's kind of a hands-off approach to management. Um, the Nature Conservancy wanted wanted to to try to make that uh, scenario as possible, meaning there's no interior fencing, there's no prescribed grazing. Just letting the bison free free range over fifty thousand acres, and and kind of watch them and see how they how they work. But but bison like cattle uh, will overgraze uh, if given the opportunity or if forced into something like that. So they're on fifty thousand acres, and that's a big property. Um, but when you put that in the perspective of how things used to be, they used to have the entire western United States to roam. Um, so they might hammer one spot and not come back for five years. So that would fully regrow. Whereas fifty thousand acres, they hammer one spot. Yeah, it, it, that face face value fifty thousand acres seems big, but it's it's a drop of water compared to what it used to be. Um, well, a drop of water would probably be useful just throughout now. <laughs> yeah. The question I had was: Do you ever try and move them? Like, even if you don't have fences to move them, just kind of. Like a herder, um, a herd, you know, herding people have moved animals all over the world just with horses or on horseback or on foot. Right. You, you know, um, we haven't we haven't tried anything like that. Our approach to managing them is, is just to keep the numbers as far down as possible. Um, something like herding them might work, but it would be uh, incredibly labor-intensive, um, especially at... at Initially, because you would have to train the buffalo to horseback, they they only get get um, human contact once a year. So, um, because of that, they tend to be uh, pretty unpredictable and and uh, wild. Essentially, it's, it's like going to try to move a herd of elk on horseback or something like that. They see horses and and people, and they're just not really sure what to do. So, so first instincts, panic, run away. Um, so that that's not to say you could get them over that, because uh, I completely believe you could, but it would it would take a lot of a lot of time up front, and, and unfortunately, 
at the moment we don't have time to commit to that. So, uh, like I said, we, we just try to manage them by keeping their numbers relatively low for that 50,000-acre pasture. Interesting. I, I'm fascinated to know how that how that goes and where it, where it goes and, you know, if it be, like, just bringing them salt and, like, showing them humans a bunch and being out there and rolling around and getting them calm. Right. Anyway, well, one, one of our... One of our projects this fall, um, we're, we're going to be sorting off between two and 400 heifer uh, calves. They'd be uh, wiener calves up to yearlings. And we'll actually be putting them in, in the corral that we work our normal cow herd on. Uh, and, and this is going to be one of the projects I'm focusing on and, and actually gentling them down and trying to teach them uh, to interact with humans and horses to the same extent that our cattle herds do. Um, so it's just natural, so that hopefully we'll run them like a herd of cattle, um, put them in a pasture for for a certain amount of time, whatever we've determined, and then go out on horseback just like a cow herd and, and move them uh, slowly, without without them breaking out in panic and trashing fences and escaping. So we we have ex- experimented in the past, um, and I'm I'm really looking forward to doing that. That'll be uh, in the middle of October that we do that, or middle of November. Sorry. Yeah, it seems like that's a really, um, I came across a study that they did in, in uh, at Rutgers University in the 80s called the Buffalo Commons, mm-hmm. where, do you hear about that? No, ma'am. Well, um, it's kind of interesting. Basically, they looked at the la- land of um, basically the Ogallala Aquifer area, Texas and Panhandle area, and they basically said that the installation of irrigated agriculture and all the development of cotton and everything that had gone on in corn and that all of that animal agriculture, all of that agriculture really had, you know, a very negative energy um, and water impact on the landscape and that over the long term, the most profitable thing to do would be deinstall agriculture and reinstall buffaloes over a pretty vast area. Right. And it was from an economic perspective. That they were yeah. making that, that making that point, and, and yeah. it was pretty it's a pretty radical point to come out of a little you know, Rutgers, but yeah, um, no, it's, yeah, and I, I I believe it, and it all has to be managed correctly. But you can do pretty amazing things with livestock. So so as a fourth generation rancher, um, and you're looking at the next kind of four generations out, where do you see where do you see um, ranch lands? playing in, what are the kind of meta trends that your, you know, your business is going to have to adapt to? What do you think is going to happen for kind of, um, for grazers in this country? Um, well, well, right now, if, if you, let's see, if you, if you're, uh, purely, purely agriculture based, chances are you don't have the, the finances to go out and buy property. Um, the only, one of, one of the only ways to make money in agriculture, uh, su- substantial money to keep growing is with um, making a bigger operation, diversifying extensively, um, or having a having a larger operation, and and that's that's kind of what we're trying to focus in on. We are incredibly diversified as a business. We run a guest program, so we have a guest lodge on one property, and then and then a guest program, just two bedrooms on this ranch, um, but that invites people from the city to come out. 
Um, and one of, one of them is more like a dude ranch. One of them is a working ranch experience where they come out and work with us and, and be a part of our team for a week, two weeks, or a month, however long uh, they want to stay. Uh, we have full hunting programs on both both properties. We have small farming operations on both properties. We have, obviously, the cattle and bison herds. And then on this ranch, we host concerts, we have con- conferences, uh, try to bring people out to the ranch, try to try to show them the world out here because, the, well, it's obvious the majority of people live in towns and, and civilization, and we are the minority out here, and it, and it, we try to invite people out to give them a glimpse in, into this world out here that is relatively unknown besides what you see in movies and, and see in the news. Um, so try to, try to spread, spread the word that we are out here and, and we're not, we don't have a closed gate policy. We'd like as many people as, as wanted to come out and, and, and share our experience and see what's out here so that we believe that, that, um, spreading the word and, and opening people's eyes to the world out here is incredibly important. And going back to the earlier point, uh, another business that we started is, is, um, called, called Ranchlands. And, and that is, we're, we're trying to put together, uh, properties. Uh, large, large-scale properties to diversify our business as well. Um, we we do extensive monitoring of all of our land. So, uh, I guess moving moving our our view of land being a multi-dimensional resource onto other properties and and developing our business at the same time conserving the land that we're managing um, and improving it hopefully through our practices. And so, so the um, so what I'm hearing is you're feeling confidence in the future of beef and the future of rangeland management, and you feel yeah. like there's even the possibility to get more stakeholders involved. Um, yeah, we'd we'd like to. Yeah, well, it brings up the question of how do you how does that translate into opportunity for you know people who want to be ranchers but who don't have that kind of capital to get involved. You know, I was thinking about soil carbon monitoring and how you can look at health of a health of a piece of land and see, you know, what is the stocking rate, what is the ecology, what is the soil health, what's the organic matter, and then put a premium on imp- improvement so that a young rancher who comes in with no capital onto these kinds of big ranches that are very expensive could, by improving the health of the land, you know, grow themselves some equity, a little nest egg that they could then leverage in getting their own business started or, you know, sending their kids to college or in other ways becoming a middle-class human being. Right. Um, Like trying to match up the incentives of the land manager with the increasingly non-farming financial partners that are are coming to dominate, like, ownership of of these properties. Properties, yeah, and that's, that's the difficult... Um, thing is, it's it's not an easy thing to break into uh, by any means. Um, it, it's hard, and, and it, there's not a lot of money in it, and it's long, and you you really have to be passionate about it, and really have to be fully invested. It, it's not it's not just a job like a nine to five. It's a, it's a lifestyle. You have to be fully committed to do it. Um, one one thing that we we have implemented on our ranch is to try to promote um, new new person, new people coming in, to, inviting them into our industry. We have an, 
an internship um, that invites people with three months to come out and, and just get a feel kind of for what we do. It's it's a non-standard internship at all. But they come out and they and they really get their hands dirty and, and kind of see if it is something they want to get a go. Because a lot, a lot of people will come out with all the best intentions and, and a, a burning passion for it and then take sense for a few days and, and just swear it off, not want anything to do with it. And that's completely understandable. Um, so I think it's a it's a better way to break into it than than throwing everything away and moving out west to become a cowboy and then all of a sudden you don't like it anymore. Another another thing we offer uh, and it's to a, to a smaller group of people it's, it's pretty pretty specific is a, a apprenticeship and that's a two year program and and we are we have uh, three people going through it right now and not one of them is from a agriculture background. Um, and and two of them are two years in, and the other guy's a year in, and that and that's uh, more in depth. Most, most all of them come as a intern first uh, and see how they like it and see how everyone matches up, and then sign on for a, a two year minimum commitment. And and we take them through. We give them part of the ranch to look after. They're responsible for everything on that part of the ranch: the water, uh, the fencing, the roads. And then when the cattle are in that pasture. They're responsible for the cattle, the health, the water, every everything that goes along with that. When they're moving, all the transects, uh, photo points, everything that we put in. Um, so it's a, it's a small thing because we we cannot turn out large numbers of kids or or young adults um, into the world that we've we've groomed. But it's kind of our our small attempt at, at trying to give those people a hand breaking into it. And and our hopes is that if if our business ranch lands is able to um, procure more properties, then then we will have a place to put put these people that we've trained um, in into one of those ranches into into a good scenario where they where they can in fact just like you said start building their nest egg. So um, tell me um, when you're. If you're if you were giving counsel to a young cowboy or aspiring cowboy, where would be some of the places you would have them start? Um, one place I'm going to go in a couple weeks is to the Kivira Coalition Conference down in New Mexico. Yeah, um, I really like that community a lot. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have other suggestions where people should go and start poking around or learning what to expect of a cowboy uh, well- in the working west? Yeah, that that's a good place to start. We we'll, we will have some people down there as well, um, and that that's something we go to every year. One of our apprentices actually came from from they did the Cavera apprenticeship, and and now she's here doing it with us. Um, that that's a that's definitely a good place to start. Um, and I don't know it. The the big thing if if you want to be a cowboy and work cattle, uh, the big, the most important thing is, is getting in a lot of cattle. Um, and one of one of the only places to do that in the U.S. where you just get volumes, so you learn their mannerisms and their reactions to your stances, and and just generally how to work cattle, is in the feedlots. Um, it's it's not a not a glamorous job at all, but but you can go to a place where there are thousands and thousands ahead, uh, and you and you get a feel for it. That obviously I I wouldn't be able to do that long term, and it's not something that I've done. Uh, what I did as an alternative, I, I spent the last year in Australia working on the cattle properties there. Uh, I, I worked uh, for 10 months in a mustering camp on two different places and, and um, combined acreage between the two two stations, 
three and a half million acres, and combined they would have run about 110,000 head of cattle. Um, so I think that that getting in as many possible is hugely beneficial for someone who wants to be a cowboy. Um, now, someone who who is looking for something a bit deeper than than just the glamour of a cowboy, um, definitely definitely places like the Cavera Coalition or, or programs like ours. I know there's a few other ones around similar to ours. Uh, I don't know them off the top of our head, top of my head. Um, but yeah, any anywhere you can get your foot in the door, because because the agriculture community is very open and and surprisingly interconnected. So so something that might seem menial, a job fixing fence or building a barn, uh, can definitely turn into more. You need, meet neighbors; those neighbors have relatives, and those relatives have friends all over the West, all over the U.S., all over the world. Um, so just get your foot in the door at, at any level. Uh, can can lead to something, maybe not, but a lot of times it does. Whoa, fun! Uh, that Australia experience sounds really awesome. Yeah, it was incredible. Um, so you did Australia as a as a kind of a training experience. Did you have any other um, training experiences you went through? Um. That that would be the big one. I have have some more kind of looming on my horizon, but um, it's it's kind of hard to imagine a, a time when I'll be able to get to them. We have a good friend in San Angelo, Texas, who who buys and, and sells a lot of cattle commercially. That's something I would like to go um, down and live with him for six months or so. Um, and that that would be the the only other big thing. But a big part of it is, is getting out and trying a lot of a lot of different methods. So. We might have a system that works really well for us, but maybe maybe some personalities don't mix with it, or, or some landscapes obviously has to be changed. So, so spending spending time on a lot of places uh, definitely helps. I've, I've worked on quite a few places over the U.S., down in Mexico, um, and then now Australia. So, so just yeah, trying to trying to spread your horizons and, and take a little bit from every place you go. Sounds pretty fun. I just wrote on my list. Stint at a cattle ranch. Investigate. Yep. <laughs> uh, it sounds like a good retreat from activism to me. Well, yes. I really pre- I appreciate your time very much and your work out on the land. Um, I will maybe see you at Kivira, and if not, I just thank you for being on the show. Yes, ma'am. Thank you very much, and sorry about the drop call. No, don't worry. If people want to know more about Ranchlands Apprenticeship or the Kivira New Agrarians Program, you can check those out. Um, Kivira Coalition is in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And Ranchlands, you guys are just ranchlands.org? Ranchlands.com. Ranchlands.com. All right. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.